Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Amos. Amos is an Old Testament prophet, and he's trying to awaken the people of Israel, the, the northern kingdom, to their sort of terrible spiritual uh, state. Uh, things have gone very wrong in Israel, and he's been doing all these sort of sermons and stunts. Last week was like this long, sad song, this lamentation. And as you see in today's text, he is, he's uh, uttering woes against Israel. We're going to talk about what that means and, and why he's doing that. Uh, but before we do that, um, Y is going to come and read it for us. Uh, uh, it's written on the, or it's printed on the back middle panel of your bulletin. You can follow on, along there as he reads. Why? Amos 5, 18 to 6, 14. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikoth your king, and Cain your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable of men, men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is, it, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and, I, and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say, no. And he shall say, silence we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks 
does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnam for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Lebohamath to the brook of the Arabah. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Thank you, Y, for reading it. Uh, Woe is me. Uh, It's a line from uh, Hamlet. Maybe you know this scene. Ophelia, uh, upon seeing the very disheveled and distraught Hamlet, she utters this line. But the line did not originate with Shakespeare. Uh, Of course, Shakespeare borrowed it from antiquity, not from the Greeks, not from the Romans, but from the Bible. Woe, that word, W-O-E, it comes up over and over again, nearly only in the Old Testament, though Jesus is the one New Testament exception, he uses it as well. The first people in the Bible, this is a fun trivia fact, the first people in the Bible to use that phrase, woe unto us, are actually the Philistines. Uh, they, they, they are terrified when Israel brings the Ark of the Covenant into, into battle. They're trying to use it as a weapon, and they're like, woe unto us, you know, what, what's going to happen? Um, but Job talks about suffering woe. Uh, King David mentions it in a few Psalms, the writer of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Isaiah just deals woe in every direction. Everybody gets woe in Isaiah, uh, Israel, and everybody else. And then Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, And, of course, Amos all speak of woe. And here in Amos 5 and 6, God, through the the sermons of Amos, pronounces woe on Israel. But what does that mean? What does it mean to pronounce woe? It sounds like something out of a a Jane Austen novel. Uh, Should we say, woe is me if you drop your phone in a sink of water? You know, woe is me if you forget your homework or your lunchbox? Uh, when we pronounce woe on another, under what situation would that make sense? Do you pronounce woe on someone else when they take too long to order in front of you at the coffee shop? Do you pronounce woe on a work colleague when they don't come through uh, on some promise? Do you pronounce woe on your little sister when she eats the last Rice Krispie square? You know, what, under what circumstances should this word be used? And spiritually speaking, then, of course... Under what circumstances is God using it? When does God pronounce woe on his people? What does this all mean? How does this apply to us? These are the questions we're going to be considering today. There's two woes in this text, and that's kind of the forms are outlined. The first one is there in the first verse. It says, woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. That'll be kind of part one. The second woe says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. We'll get to that one later. So what is a woe? It's a combination of sadness and or criticism, possibly just sadness, sometimes sadness and criticism together. It expresses how terrible something is, how tragic. So when Job in the Old Testament, you know, Job, he had all these terrible things happen to him. When he kind of sits in the the ashes of his life and says, woe is me, that makes sense. He's saying how terrible, how tragic my life is. But to pronounce woe on someone else is a somewhat different thing. You don't pronounce woe on merely sad thing. You don't say, oh, woe is you. Uh, But sad things that are also worthy of criticism. Sad things also worthy of criticism. So we might rephrase 518, the very first words of our text, to say something like this. How terrible it is when when people desire the day of the Lord. How tragic. Now... We might shrug our shoulders, okay, why does this matter? 
To ancient Israelites, this mattered deeply. And that phrase, if that was indeed like a line Amos said in a sermon, it would have been deeply confusing because for nearly all Israelites, the day of the Lord was a day eagerly desired. They all wanted it to come. The day of the Lord, it's not a phrase used outside the prophets. You don't find it in the historical books, even the Psalms, uh, really the wisdom books, Psalms just a little bit. But the prophets use this phrase all over the place. And what the day of the Lord was, actually we kind of sang about it uh, before, but it's going to be the day when God destroys his enemies. A day when all the wrongs are going to be put right, when all evil is ended, when a sense of, of peace, and the Israelites would call it shalom, this sort of whole, very holistic peace, when shalom would rule. And the people of Israel, they're waiting for a magnificent kingdom to be set up. It'll be ruled by God's Messiah. It'll be full of all kinds of abundance. That all would be at least started, kicked off on the day of the Lord. So you can see why people would be eager for it. And then it's deeply confusing for them to either read or hear verse 18. Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. But then Amos goes on, he says, the day of the Lord will be darkness, not light. It'll be like running away from a lion and running into a bear. That's bad. It'll be like going through your front door at night. Oh, you relax. And then all of a sudden a snake bites you. The day of the Lord in verse 20, he says, it's not light, it's darkness, it's not bright, but it's gloomy. That doesn't make any sense. It's deeply confusing. And so far, Amos has not told us why. Why will this happen? Why is the day of the Lord that he's talking about, why is it so different from what was the normal expectation? The clues are in verses 21 through 23. Let's look. Verse 21, God says he hates, he despises their feasts. God does not say he hates many things, but he does hate their feasts. He has no joy in their solemn assemblies. Verse 22, he will not accept the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, or the peace offerings, any kind of offering, they're all, they're all out. Verse 23, he wants them to stop playing their instruments, stop singing their songs. He doesn't want to hear them. Now this is even more confusing because if God told the people in the law, you were going to read Leviticus or whatever, do all these things. Have these feasts, have these assemblies, offer these kinds of offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. God inspired the Psalms. He commanded the singing of the Psalms. But here he says, stop all of it. Don't do any of it. In contrast, verse 24, he wants justice to roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, we don't live in a desert climate. Maybe some of you have. But in arid climates, there are these geographical features called wadis, like W-A-D-I, a wadi. And it was, it was sort of like this dry creek bed. It's a channel for water. And most of the time, a wadi lies dry and empty. But then when it rains, you sort of get like this little kind of like flash flood or flash creek. It fills with water, and the water kind of goes streaming through it. And in verse 24, God's telling Israel, don't be a wadi, only having mercy and justice, you know, now and then. You should be like an ever-flowing stream, like, like a, like a spring-fed stream where it's just a constant rush, a constant flow of righteous acts. See, the problem in Israel, and we've said variations of this throughout Amos, that people were playing at religion. They were basically religious hypocrites. They were mouthing the words they were supposed to say on the Sabbath day or when they went to the, to the, the temple, but there was no life behind it. They, they, were, they were making speeches about being righteous and being good, but, it, but in their private lives, they were abusive and exploitative. Their words and their life, it wasn't matching up. Uh, John Foreman, lead singer of Switchfoot, 
in one of his solo albums, he wrote a song called Instead of a Show. Maybe some of you have heard about this. It's the only song I've ever heard of that's based on uh, Amos 5, 21 through 23. And it's great. I've, you should go listen to it. I'm going to read verse 2 to you of, of his song. It goes like this. Your eyes are closed when you're praying. You sing right along with the band. You shine up your shoes for services. There's blood on your hands. You turned your back on the homeless, the ones that don't fit in your plan. Quit playing religion games. There's blood on your hands. See, our original question here is, why should the people not be eager for the day of the Lord? It doesn't make any sense. The answer is because they've been messing around. They've been pretending at religion while living however they want. They've placed their hope in what is ultimately false, unacceptable worship, and they have not anticipated that God will not accept that sort of rote, mechanical, meaningless offering if it is not accompanied by love and righteousness. Worship offered on a Sunday and, and abuse on a Monday, that doesn't cut it. Monday's actions make a mockery of Sunday's piety, so you may as well knock it off. Imagine a wife or a husband who, whenever they are asked, said, yes, I love my wife, I love my husband. How could I not? I live in the same house with them, don't I? Don't we drive together to grocery store and church? Am I not diligent to go out with him or her for dinner every once in a while? Do we not go on vacation together? But imagine the same spouse, though sort of performing the right actions, actually refuse to love their partner. What if there was no affection? What if they never talked about anything other than the urgent? What if in their heart, the mechanical spouse just spent all their time thinking about life with a different person? Well, of course, an outside observer would probably say, that's not a healthy marriage. That's a marriage in deep trouble. We might even say that's a marriage in name only, technically married, but that's about it. And God says, this is what Israel's doing. If you look at verse 25 and 26, it's sort of these strange references, but God is basically saying, while you've been going through the motions of worshiping me, you've been running around with other gods on the side. You've been going on dates with Sikath and Kayun. You've been cherishing them. You've been bringing them presents. You've been developing this other relationship. Because their heart is not in it, because righteousness and justice have not come hand in hand with their sort of surface worship, God is not pleased with them. See, God, or Israel, has failed to comprehend the day of the Lord will ultimately be a day of justice for everyone. Everyone gets judged on the day of the Lord. Every person has to give an account, uh, and, and hypocritical worship will not cut it. Israel thinks the day of the Lord, that's just for our enemies. But they have not understood they are living like God's enemies. The day of reckoning, ah, it's just for those other guys. No, no, no. The day of reckoning is for all people, and it actually according to many scriptures, it will start with those who should have known better. So therefore God says, woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. Because they, will not, they do not realize they will be judged on the day of the Lord. I think this leads to a sober warning for God's people today. And I think I'd phrase it something like this. Worship ought to lead to spiritual development. And if it does not, something is wrong. I'll say it again. Worship ought to lead to spiritual development. If it does not, something is wrong. See, the problem in Israel, they had worship, at least in its outward form. They had, they had spiritual activities, but there was no corresponding pursuit of justice and right living. A true theological idea, worship, was made into a farce by the lifestyle of those who practiced it. 
See, we might say how tragic it is if if a Christian says one thing on Sunday and lives differently every other day of the week. How sad it is when Christians do not practice justice and righteousness at work and at home and in their communities. And if and when that's true of us, we may as well stop singing, we may as well stop preaching, we may as well stop taking the Lord's Supper if we aren't going to live like Christians. The very, very difficult thing about Christianity is your heart has to be in it. And I do not mean that you cannot have any doubts or questions, wonderings. Uh, we, we all do. That's quite normal. Sometimes you have to live your way into belief like that. That's fine. But I think what we're learning here is God cannot stand pretense. He cannot stand when you pretend like something is true when in fact something different is true. And if you go and read Jesus' woes, when he says woe to someone in the Gospels, it's nearly always directed at religious professionals who appear to be the most serious about following God, but he calls them things like whitewashed tombs. It's all neat and tidy on the outside, but inside it's death. So you have to want justice to roll down in your life. You have to want righteousness to flow through your life to your, to your street and to your apartment building and to your coworkers. But how do you want that? How do, how, do you, how do you become a, or how do you want to want that? Well, maybe think about it this way. Think about all the questions that come into your mind when you think about doing justice, doing righteousness, all the objections you raise, even without trying. I'll give you some of mine, okay? Uh, sometimes I think things like, well, this person doesn't deserve help because they've been mean to me in the past. Or how about this one? I don't have to be nice to that person because I was already nice to them once and they didn't say thank you that time. Or how about this one? It's my stuff. I worked hard for it. Why should I take it and give it to someone else? What do we do with these objections when they pop up, pop up in our life? I think what we do is we take the gospel and we inject it sort of right into the middle. Someone doesn't deserve help because they've been mean. At the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The last time they didn't say thank you. How many times have I not been thankful for what Christ has done for me? Not being grateful for forgiveness in new life. What about the, it's my stuff, why should I have to give it away? Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. See, when we worship Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, it has to lead to spiritual development. It has to lead to us becoming more like him. It has to lead to justice and righteousness because Jesus was full of justice and righteousness. And as his heart shapes our heart, it makes us into people who not just do justice and do righteousness, but who also want to be just, want to be right. It changes both our actions and our motivations. And if and when it doesn't, what Amos is saying is something's wrong. It should lead us to fear. It should lead us not to desire the day of the Lord. And so woe to those of us who rest on shallow, superficial worship while neglecting the weightier matters of justice and righteousness. That's the first woe. Second woe, if you look at chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Okay, first puzzle. The book of Amos, primarily addressed to who? I probably said it like 50 times. Israel, the northern kingdom. Who is chapter 6, verse 1 addressed to? Zion. That's a code name, a nickname for Jerusalem, the city of David, southern kingdom. So what's going on? Well, the and here really helps us out. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. 
and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Short story here, all of God's people, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, all of God's people are included in this woe. But just like with the first woe, we need more information. Because what's wrong with feeling at ease? What's wrong with feeling secure? I like feeling at ease. I like feeling secure. Lots of us, we design life around these feelings. Well, this sort of confusing phrase right there at the end of verse 1, I think helps us out why this sense of ease and security is a problem. Because what, it, what that's saying there, and it's, the, the grammar is convoluted. I'll, I'll give you the short form. Uh, Isaiah and Judah, they see themselves as notable, as like kind of first among the nations. Essentially, they're so confident in their position as the people of God that they're sure, well, no harm's going to come to us, right? We're the people of God. Their ease is not born of trust in God, but sort of has like this scent, this whiff of presumption and assumptions. Now, in Psalm 84 and a bunch of other psalms, the psalmist will say something like this, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. So with a bit of theological calculation, we have to conclude the sense of comfort and security, that's not the problem, because we're told to trust in the Lord, get, get, it from, get it from God. The problem is, where does that feeling come from? And where does Israel's come from? We quickly find out. If you look at verse 2 and verse 3, Amos warns the Israelites their sense of security is misplaced. Israel believes, well, we're the special people of God. No, we're never going to be overthrown. No disaster is going to come on them, come on us. And in response, Amos says, hey, go look around at these other places. Have you been to Kalna? Have you been to Hamath? Been to Gath? Now, we don't know a ton about these places. We know they were sort of formidable cities. Uh, the main theory around this is that these places have already fallen to Assyrian, you know, past campaigns. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't sort of little towns. They were big cities. And they were all around Israel. And they were very close to Israel. Are we okay? I feel like I, we're good. Uh, very close to Israel. Stronger cities than Samaria and Jerusalem have already fallen. So Amos basically asks, are you better than them? Is your territory greater than them? Um, and this insinuates that Samaria, that Israel, is not better morally, not better spiritually. And Amos has already explained they are inferior militarily. Essentially, you have no advantage over these places. This would have been profoundly insulting, by the way. If you were an Israelite, you'd be like, wait, what? No, no, we are morally superior. And Amos sets them straight. No, no, actually, you're not. So if all these other cities can be destroyed, why does Israel think itself immune to such disaster? And Amos says there in verse 3, well, you think the day of disaster, it's really far away, but it's not. Now, remember, we're talking about the second woe. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Amos has warned them, but we haven't gotten into the specifics. What's gone wrong? Why, why, what's going on with their sense of ease and comfort? Look at verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. Now, this looks like the start of another woe, but technically, in the Hebrew, it doesn't have the word woe there. Other translations, if you have NIV or whatever, they don't actually include the word woe here. So I take this as an explanation of what's gone wrong with their comfort and security. What is wrong? Well, they're lying on beds of ivory. You're like, well, <laughs> why, why is that wrong? That sounds kind of nice, actually. Um, likely, it's not a bed made entirely out of ivory. That would have been extremely expensive and probably not that comfortable. Ivory, you know, kind of hard. But it's likely sort of a wooden bed with some cushions and kind of inlaid with ivory decorations. Essentially, just picture an expensive and luxurious bed, kind of hand-carved or, or whatever. 
Also, middle of verse 4, they eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall. This is basically a reference to eating choice cuts of meat. If you've eaten lamb, you know a younger lamb is better than some old worn-out sheep. Uh, A younger uh, cow is better than some old worn-out cow, veal, you know, all these kinds of things. They're eating choice cuts of meat. So they're sleeping on the, on the best, most luxurious beds. They're eating the best choices of meat. In verse 5, they sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. This just kind of implies they have all kinds of leisure time. And in their leisure, they're, they're thinking themselves, styling themselves as instrument makers and songwriters like King David. Verse 6, they drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. When do you need a bowl of wine? When a glass isn't enough, I suppose. You know, like those giant cocktail glasses that hold like four liters of margaritas. Like it's, a, it's something like that. It's a casual Wednesday for these people. They are drinking a bowl of wine. And they also have the finest lotions and oils. See, what is Amos describing? It's a person who lives in luxury. They have the best food, the best drink, the best life accessories, the most free time. But there's something really important coming, and a comparison is coming, because these luxuries aren't necessarily sin. We see people in the scriptures who have tremendous wealth, but are still righteous, still just, including the aforementioned Job. Not many, by the way, but there are some. But this is, so there's an important comparison. I need you to pay attention to that. If you look at the last line of verse 6, have this whole description of a very luxurious lifestyle, but they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Amos is saying, woe to those who live at ease, who live in comfort, and give no thought to God or their neighbors. The problem with these rich people, they're living like kings, they're living like queens, uh, but they are not worried about the poor, they are not worried about the marginalized, and they are not worried about the system that enabled them to accumulate such huge amounts of wealth. And in verse 7, it's a pretty strict uh, judgment. The people who thought of themselves at first as the head of all the nations, God says, okay, you want to be first? You will be first into exile. That's what you get to be first in. Now, again, it's not a sin to be rich, but it is a sin, according to the scriptures, to trust in your wealth, to rely on your wealth, to look to your wealth and say, "This this is what tells me who I am. Now, You can read passages like this and wonder, maybe I should avoid being wealthy. In case I come to trust in that wealth, uh, that's possible. For some, maybe it should be avoided. But the problem is, is that money isn't the only way to be rich. It's not the only way that temptation comes. Do we also say, maybe I shouldn't be healthy, maybe I shouldn't be wise, maybe I shouldn't be beautiful, in case I accidentally trust those things? It's tricky. It's not as easy as, as it sounds. Later on, Paul will, in one of his letters, will simply write, hey, tell the wealthy to be generous. <laughs> that's, his, that's one of his main prescriptions. What do you do with your extra? That's the pressing question. Wealth is not necessarily a sin, but temptation often rides along with it. But still, this passage warns about these luxuries, warns about the finer things of life. It warns those who pursue ease and comfort at the expense of righteousness and justice. What do we do with these warnings? Well, look at the middle of verse 8. God says, I abhor, very strong words again, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. 
Now, on one level, I think we take this quite literally. God hates the sinful pride in the people of Israel. They're trusting in their military strength to, st- to save them. He's not happy they have fortresses because they're relying on those fortresses. But stronghold can mean lots of different things. God calls himself a stronghold over and over. So I think a helpful application question as you think about that first woe and the second woe is this. Where does your stronghold lie? To what do you run when life gets hard? In what do you place your trust to ensure life goes smoothly? If you have a bad day at work, bad day at school, bad day at wherever you spend your days, and you come home, or you close your laptop, or you put down your tools, or the kids go to bed, uh, and you think, man, I could really use a what? I could really use a what now? A drink, a snack, a distraction? Like sometimes you do just need to eat, you miss dinner because things were crazy, but maybe in the answer, however you answer that question in your mind, maybe there's an answer there, a clue to a stronghold you are trusting in to make life okay. If you trust in wealth, if you trust in yourself, if you trust in pleasure or comfort, if your real stronghold is just a vestige of spirituality with no heart behind it, Amos is saying that's a tragedy. And God's going to judge it. And we don't have time, unfortunately, to look at in depth. But verses 9 through 13 are these promises of destruction. The great houses of Israel, they're all going to be destroyed. Even the little houses of Israel, they're going to be smashed into bits. All those lovely ivory beds, gone. Anyone left alive will be fearful. All those who have turned justice into poison, righteousness into wormwood, the day of the Lord won't be pleasant. But this chapter, I think, can largely be summed up by a pun. Those of you who like puns, dad jokes, all those kinds of things. There's an ancient taunt that Amos delivers in verse 13, and I want to explain it to you, and we're going to kind of end with this. So during the reign of Jeroboam II, he was the king of Israel when Amos was prophesying, Israel had been very successful militarily. They recaptured many different places. Their borders had expanded. And two places they had recaptured from enemies were two cities sort of on the eastern part of Israel called Lodabar and Karnaim, both referenced in verse 13, kind of out by the Jordan River. Now Lodabar, that name means nothing, means like nothing, like in quote, that's Lodabar, nothing. Karnaim means horns or strength. So Amos is making a pun. See if you catch it. He's saying, why do you rejoice in in the capture of Lodabar? Why do you rejoice in the capture of nothing? Why do you boast about your strength in capturing strength? It's all circular. It's all trivial. Yes, that was a real military victory. You won nothing. We We might just say it this way. How tragic it is. How sad it is when the people of God spend their lives chasing nothing. How tragic and wasteful it is when the people of God spend their strength on acquiring more strength. It doesn't make any sense. It's circular. It's trivial. And we are reminded here the ground of reality is Christ. He is what makes it all worthwhile. The gospel changes what we do with our wealth and what we do with our strength. Because we are told, if you are wealthy, be generous. If you are strong, serve. If you have, give. If you eat, Eat with others. Set a bigger table. Why? Because that's who Jesus was. That's who Jesus continues to be to us. Jesus, who stood up in the temple, said, Is anyone thirsty? Come to me and drink. If anyone's hungry, eat of me and be filled. 
And so I believe it's ultimately Christ who stands behind this text, pronouncing woe on his people, not in spite, not vindictively, not in jealousy, but because he wants to see them change and turn before it's too late. My prayer is for us that we would heed this message. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it speaks you know, harshly or bluntly to us, when it forces us to acknowledge painful realities, what we don't even want to say out loud. So Lord, for those of us who've been off track this past week, this past year, who have a vestige, a surface level understanding of Christianity, but no heart behind it, would you show us ourselves rightly? And may we turn to you, and may you rescue us, give us soft hearts, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. In Christ's name, amen.